Welcome back to Broken Record Ministries. <laughs> Want to set a bar for us, Chris? Sure. I can't remember if I've used this one before. I think I have. So my, I might I might get it ruined, but... I'll pretend I forgot. Yeah. So why aren't koala bears considered bears? I think you have said it before, but I think it was before the name change. Okay. I don't remember. I don't know. Because they don't meet the qualifications. You know what? <laughs> you haven't told that one before. I would have remembered that punchline. <laughs> nice. That's new. That's pretty good. I like it. I was like, I... I came across that. I was like, I'm pretty sure I've used that one before because it's one of my favorites. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'll throw it out there. I'll see if it sticks. <laughs> it's, it's I, I landed it. That was funny <laughs> enough that that might have set the bar a little too high. So we'll see. We'll see how the rest of this episode goes. I don't know. I didn't have a lot of time to put my notes together. I've had a lot going on. But what's on your all's mind this week before we dive in? Mm, not a whole lot going mm-hmm. on with me this week. Any God sightings? Well, all the time. All the time? Yeah. Any you want to share? Anything that jumps out? Not really. Not just, just more so, you know, seeing the marvels of the, you know, outdoors. Now that it's nice and sunny, Mm -hmm. you can get out and spend some time outside, you know, nature. Yeah. I did a little of that this weekend too. Just kind of taking it in. Sometimes it's so you, you just take it for granted how beautiful his, his masterpiece is. Yeah. Work of art. It all fits together like it was designed. Mm-hmm. Almost. That's what it seems like, huh? <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand how you can look at beauty and think that that comes out of chaos. It doesn't. Beauty never comes out of chaos. Yeah. Anything on your mind, Micah? Good Micah? Yes. Let's start calling you the good Micah from now on. That's hey, right. good Micah. Like a good dinosaur. I guess that sounds like a good TV show. I know. Good dinosaur. The good one. We'll put a pilot together. (laughs) There you go. Um, Yes, I've got a lot on my mind. Um, Probably enough to take probably four episodes, but I won't. I won't unload. I won't unload here. But if something's on your uh, heart, then share it. We'll work around it. One of the things that I've that I've really been focusing on and thinking about is we've been going through the Book of Revelation. And we're talking about the different assemblies, and all throughout that, there's a recurring phrase that talks about removing the lampstand. Mm-hmm. Removing the lampstand from, uh, you know, repent or I will come quickly and remove your lampstand. And I, and I believe that lampstand is the effectiveness that we have for Christ. I agree. He's going to, you know, because of our disobedience, because of our, you know, not walking with him, because of our, the things that we place above God, then, then we lose effectiveness for Christ. And, and I've just been hearing a lot about that that keeps coming up. And then um, it didn't, of course, God worked it out this way. But last night, we we're going through a series, The Truth Project, on Sunday nights. And he was talking about America and how it was founded in the different aspects. And he prefaced it with, you know, with um, I'm not here to deify America or, de- you know, deify the, the founding fathers. But we're just going to kind of look at what, what it is. And, and he used this verse, you know that the lampstand has been removed from, from America and our effectiveness, our effectiveness for God. And so it was just kind no of, no kidding that popped yeah, up. Yeah, it did. Wow. And so it was just a reminder that, you know, we, we've got to be in pursuit of Christ. We've got to be on our, we got to have our walk. We're living in a day and age where we're so flippant, lackadaisical. I don't care. You know, if, mm-hmm. if it's convenient, I'll serve him. If it's not, then I'll just do my own thing. 
and and then we're not we're not being effective and it's because of our disobedience and that's why he says repent or else it's not his first choice his choice for us is that we be effective and that we be in his service and that we be sorry i'm not trying to get preachy but but, but, you know it's you know it's that we be the lights that he's called us to be and that's why i think he says repent or else i will do this and he did do that in a lot of those assemblies he did that I think he's done that with our nation. He's done that with huh. with here. He's removed that that lampstand from us. Why? Because we failed to honor him. We failed to, and he even used that 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 word. I forget. Um, remember, repent, and I forget the last R. But he even used those that, those R's mm-hmm. <laughs> last night in the in the video. You know, repent, re- remember, repent, and it'll probably come to me later. But um, it's 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 just a reminder that we've got to pursue him with everything that we have and we're living in a day and age that we're not really doing that and i think god is removing that lampstand i i agree you know for it's four or five of those churches i think it's five of them he follows the same template it's i know your deeds yep repent from where you fall into or yeah repent away from where you fall into or i'll remove the lampstand it's like there's four or five of those churches he he says that to us and I can't help but think that's kind of it's going to kind of fit in with with what I planned for the topic today. Actually, this week is too often I see the churches promoting a more feel good, ear tickling message that is devoid of repentance. Or if it does include repentance, it's it's watered down. Yeah, it's a watered down repentance. Like it, like like in the new covenant, we don't have to obey a standard. Mm-hmm. It's too often what I see in the churches, and that's exactly what he's addressing with those five assemblies in the book of Revelation is is their unwillingness to talk about true biblical repentance. Yeah. And the result is losing the lampstand. Yes. And I can't, you know, something that I've been brought to, there's a couple things I've been brought to that really fits in with that. One is Joel chapter two, where he talks about restoring the years that the locusts have eaten. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but think of that. But, you know, you, yeah. you mentioned the, the three R's, and I don't think that's the R that he used, but the, immediately what popped into my mind was restoration. Mm-hmm. And, and to be restored, you have to have fallen. Yes. From a from a particular state, and I I kind of think of those churches and our churches. Honestly, I think we've we've brought locusts into our yes. assemblies with our with our disobedience, and it's eaten some years away. And we have got to we have got to repent. We've got to return to Him, so that He can restore the years that we've allowed the locusts to eat. We we can't get those years back. Yes, but the years moving forward can be better. Yeah, repentance is more than um, I'm sorry or I'm sorry I got caught or. Mm-hmm. I got this bad feeling, you know, it's repentance is a change. It yes. is a complete 360 degree turn. I'm heading one direction. 180, you mean? Yeah, 180, yes. Yeah. You know, I'm and I'm turning completely the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. And and that's what repentance is. It's turning the direction. And yeah. so often we kind of do the 360. <laughs> we go all the way around and go yeah. head back the same way we're going, and that's not right. repentance. Yeah. It's, okay, I'm, I repented, I turned around, but now I'm going back the same yeah. way I came and no, you're right. It's a 180. It's a complete turn, you know, that, that complete turning in the opposite direction. Yeah. That's actually something I want to dive into on the bottom half is what repentance looks like, what it is. And it's kind of funny because that's really, you two know, I had some mechanical issues today. So I uh, I didn't blow the rod like I stupidly told the mechanic I did and he got a $3,000 cord on the fix. I blew the drive shaft. I'm not a mechanic. Sue me. That's not the gift that God gave me. So I said the wrong thing. Either way, rod or drive shaft it stopped it's me in my tracks <laughs> yeah right. i'm i'm grateful it happened i'm grateful where it happened you know what i'm grateful it happened because he used it to teach me something interesting today um 
and you know i'm grateful when it happened obviously because i went back home for a for a visit pretty far away and i knew there was an issue when i went because i had a vibration in the front end and i shouldn't have taken it it could have it could have happened at any point and stranded me in the middle of nowhere instead it stranded me right in my hometown and it happened right in front of a parking lot so i could easily pull in that was it was divine he was looking out but it kind of taught me a lesson about repentance because it's funny you mentioned that because i went home because I didn't have a choice. <laughs> right. So I did a Bible study and I did a study on repentance and we'll get to what I specifically looked at on the bottom half of the episode. But what he really pressed on me is repentance is like you said, it's a change in course. It's a change in direction. It's when he, he takes you, you're going away and he stops you. He stops you in the course that you're going to change your direction and bring you somewhere else. So in the context of what happened to me, I was on my way to do not busy work, but you know, you, you know what I was on the way to do. It was good stuff that I was doing, but it maybe wasn't what I should have been doing today. It obviously isn't what he wanted me to be doing today. So he stops me in my tracks, blows my drive shaft out <laughs> to force me to call for help, to cry out to a toe for help and to come back home again and to dig into his word. And I think that's what repentance is. I think repentance is spiritually we're on our way to do something that in our own mind seems good. Often in our own heart, we delude ourselves into believing it's perfectly fine what we're doing, but it's not. So sometimes he has to reach down and blow our spiritual drive shaft out to force us to a stop, get us to cry out to him for a toe, bring us back home, and dig back into his word again. That was the lesson he laid on me through it. So I'm grateful it happened. It's kind of a cool lesson. I wish the lesson would have been a little cheaper. Right. But that's okay. It's his money anyway. Yep, there you go. That's where I came to. That's what's been on my mind today. And I and I think that's the devil's the devil's tactic to keep us busy doing good things. I mean, like you said, it's not anything that was wrong or anything that was necessarily pagan. And I think that's that's one of the big big tools he uses now is to keep us busy doing those things where we think we're doing good. Mm-hmm. You look at that Ephesus assembly, they were, in all reality, they were looking good. I mean, they had, they were doing good things. They were doing all this stuff that was, you know, you would look at them and go, man, they, they're doing good. But they weren't doing it from the heart. They had no yes. heart. They had no love. They had no compassion. They were just doing it. Yeah. It's not I the think, works he was chastising. Yes. It was the source from which the yes. works were coming. Exactly. But what does he say? That he doesn't, he doesn't weigh the outward appearance. He weighs the motives yes. of the heart. Yep. It's exactly what I think of when I see Ephesus. He yep. was weighing the heart. Yes. And absolutely. in love, he was saying, you've got to fix this. You've got to give this to me to fix it because it's not good. You don't love. That's essentially the message to Ephesus is you're doing good things, but you don't love people. Yes. You don't really love people. And that's the, that's the underlying, the foundation that he wants us to build everything on, spiritually speaking, is on love. Yes. First for him and then for our neighbor. And if it's not built on love, it's, it's on sand. Yes. Absolutely. As soon as the earth shakes, it's all going to tumble down. Yeah. I think, I think he he loves that. The devil loves that. Mm-hmm. He loves us busy doing that stuff because, in our mind, we're justifying it. Yeah, mm-hmm. in our mind, we're yeah. going, "Hey, I'm I'm okay." Yeah, I think you nailed it earlier when you said, it's "Not so much as I'm sorry." It's a, "Well, I'm sorry I got caught." Yeah, you know, and <laughs> and, and then that's where our sorries come from. Well, did you really have a change of heart? Are you really, are you really turning that one eighty? Are you just saying going through the motions and saying i'm sorry mm-hmm. or is it is it a place from true repentance yeah 
going that extra step, you know, you think of the Good Samaritan, and I think everybody knows that story, and probably most people listening know that story, but that's that's a, an example of genuine compassion. I'm going to help him. Not only am I going to help him, but I'm going to put him up in a place where he can get the treatment that he needs and spare no cost because I'm going to come back through. And if it exceeds what I've already given you, I'm going to, I'll pay you what, 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 what I owe you. That that's genuine. Which, oh, I was going to say, which means he was opening the door to be taken yeah. advantage of and didn't yes. care. Yeah. Cause exactly. love mattered more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that, that's the genuineness of our, of our heart. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had recently, I had somebody ask me, you know, like, you know, cause you know, I, I told the story last week about the, of the, of buying the guy's meal in front of me and, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, someone, someone came, someone else, um, was like, well, what, what do you do about people that, that do that? They'll go to cafeterias or places like that and they'll, and they'll act like they forgot their, and just to get the person behind them to pay for their food. And I go, I don't have to answer for that. Right. I don't, the only thing that I'm held accountable for is what I do on the other end. Yeah. You know, and that's, and I think that's where we, you know, we kind of have to get back to that mentality is I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, you have to give your fortune or give your, you know, your last penny to every person that you see, but to, to stop worrying about less about of, of what you're getting out of it as opposed to what you're putting out there because you can obviously you can be a good person and not have love yes right we need to keep in mind too that even if somebody takes it takes advantage of our love and our kindness that can be something a seed planted that god uses months weeks months or even years later to bring them home again so if if we're only loving because the person appreciates it on the other end the ones that need it the most are the ones that maybe in that moment don't appreciate it mm-hmm. those are the ones that are lost that he's trying to draw back home again and it might be your love as a as a light and a beacon mm-hmm. that he uses to draw back home again but we have to be properly exhibiting that light you know bringing it back to the the, the analogy of the lampstand the whole point of the lampstand is for the people walking in darkness they see that light and they're drawn to it Right. I kind of think of of in the Exodus account. Yeah. I forget what chapter, but it's the it's one of the I think it's the final plague before the plague of the firstborn, the darkness. I think it's I think it's the ninth plague. I think so, yeah. And what's interesting about that plague is it says that it's it's a darkness you can feel. Yeah. Like it's so dark you can feel it. Except in the homes of the Israelites, mm-hmm. there's a deep spiritual symbolism there. Yes. The only place the light existed was in the homes of the people that God had chosen for himself. That's a picture of the purpose of the lampstand and us as his assembly. Because the Egyptians back then could look and see the light's gone out everywhere else, but not in their house. Something supernaturally keeping the light burning in their house. And I think it caused some Egyptians to think twice about the way they were going. Oh, right, and that's the whole purpose of our lampstand—the light that we exhibit, spiritually speaking. You know, I think a lot of people walking in darkness—if if we're properly displaying the light of Christ, the Messiah in us—they'll look, and they'll see there's something different about that person. Mm-hmm. There's a light shining from that purpose, from that person, and I want that. I want that. They may not understand it or realize it in the moment. You may feel taken advantage of, 
or spitefully misused, but later, maybe that's a spark that draws them to his light, and that should be our goal. Our goal should not be getting credit for our love. Mm-hmm. If, if, if our goal is to be credited for all that we did to love people, then we're self-seeking. We're not seeking his kingdom. We're, ke- we're seeking our own individual kingdom, and that's a false light. And I think that's what Ephesus yes. was guilty of. I think that they were, this is an assumption, but if they were doing good deeds, but it wasn't built on love, then it had to have been built on something. And I think what it was built on was boastfulness. Yes, They were mm-hmm. boasting in their good deeds because they wanted personal credit for all the good they were doing. Yep. And we should be willing to love, even if we get no credit, even if we're hated for it, shouldn't matter if we have the right motivation and he weighs the motives. Mm-hmm. And we have to weigh our motives too. Yes, absolutely. Anything else? And the caution oh, is, go ahead. no, the caution is, not to be calloused by that. Yes. Like That's what like, so like you're, like you're talking about because I, I've, I've been guilty of that. I've had that happen before. I've paid for somebody's motel room and bought them groceries and bought them food and, and realized it was all a scam. And boy, I kicked myself for a long time after that. You know, here I used the Lord's money, you know, used assembly funds to pay for for a couple of nights in a motel and to buy them groceries and thought I was helping this this family and turned out it was all all a big scam and they were gone and it calluses you mm-hmm. it makes you it makes your heart hard it does and and you're like well I'm not doing that again I'm going to screen everybody and I'm going to well that's not love that's that's you know <laughs> that's something else <laughs> that's that's anger that's frustration that's mm-hmm. I'm not going to get burned again well it does callous us or we get to a point where we go on, I can help anybody ever. And so it's exactly where it leads. Yes, it does. And that's exactly what you said. And and I totally agree. And I had to come to that realization, real realization, whatever I'm going to pull, pull a Chris, whatever that word is. Yeah. Whatever that word is for that now. I know. Realization. Um, that, that, <laughs> sorry, I know, call you out. <laughs> I know, sorry. No, that's but right. that it come to that realization that it's the Lord's money. Mm-hmm. And I'm responsible to do what God has prompted me to do, and they're responsible to do what they're blessed with. Yep. And it's not my responsibility to how they receive the blessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it's it's very easy to get calloused. Yeah. And the moment we see that welling up within us, we've got to choke it down yes. immediately. I'll be I'll, I'll be honest, like there was a a, a really short moment when I was in my vehicle broken down in the parking lot and I'm trying to call everybody. I can't get a hold of anybody. Micah didn't answer his phone cause he just ignored my call joking. He didn't do that. <laughs> um, Steph was in meetings. I couldn't get a hold of my wife, you know, and you know, and I, I'm like an hour and a half away. Yeah. I didn't even try to call. Yeah. Chris. Right. He's, he's he's just so people are like, why didn't you call right? Chris? Well, I just knew I couldn't <laughs> depend on him. No, that's not true. <laughs> joking. No, no. If he was closer, he would have been the first I called probably. But, uh, you know, like I, I called a few people and I was calling mechanics and stuff. And, and at one point I asked somebody who was their secretary. I'm like, are you guys willing to work on a Land Rover? Cause I know it's hard to find somebody that will, you know? And I hear her ask in the background. He's like, I hear him in the background. Pardon. I'm just quoting him. Hell no. And I'm like, okay, I get it. But so I'm like trying to get like suggestions on who to call. Anyway, long story short, I hang up the phone and there's like a, a brief little moment there where I'm like, yeah, figures, you know, you know, I bend over backwards every day to try to help other people and I can't find one person to help me when I need it. And immediately I, I recognize that. I'm like, nope, stop. That's not good. Mm-hmm. It's not a good attitude to fix that right now. We have to recognize it in the moment because if you, if you let that take a foothold in your heart, 
even something small like that, it it will quickly, rapidly, I've walked this road, turn into anger and bitterness. Yes. And it can happen faster than you realize. And, and until it's very hard to weed out. Right. It's an invasive weed if you let it grow. And it gets to a point, if you don't pluck it out immediately when you see that, that it it can be plucked out with his help, but it takes a lot of time and, and pain that you don't want to put yourself through. Just recognize it immediately. I think that's a common a common problem that Christians have in today's world is it's it's hard to find that line between not being taken advantage of or being a doormat, mm-hmm. but then at the same time showing love because that's the the enemy's first weapon and not and nine times out of ten I'll hear you're supposed to be a Christian. Unquestionable love. Unquestionable love doesn't mean I'm a doormat and I'm going to, somebody that's taking advantage of me, I'm going to let them do it over and over and over again. There, nowhere in the Bible does it say, hey, be a doormat. Right. Let everybody use you and abuse you and lose you. And, you know, no, that's not in there. Right. So, and that's, it's a hard line to walk mm-hmm. between how do we keep ourselves becoming jaded, you know, but also not be taken advantage. It's funny you mentioned that because yesterday I was talking to my uncle about somebody that, that really did him wrong, really did him wrong in a real bad way. And, and he's like, you know, well, we got to forgive him. You know, we, we got to forgive him. It doesn't really, it doesn't really matter what was done. And I, you know, I had a conversation with him about that and I was kind of stunned because like he, it's fresh for him. And I'm like, man, that's awesome that that's your attitude and, you know, forgiveness, even when they're not really sorry. And I agreed with him. We had a conversation. I used that same phrase. And like that said, that doesn't mean that you have to be their doormat. You know what I mean? And just, and just let them treat you like a punching bag. Mm-hmm. But I think there are, there are, we err on one of two sides there, right? We act like that because we can be forgiving. We can walk in forgiveness and love. So it's a, it's a fruit of the spirit. You have to, you have to give yourself over to him first and let that, let that fruit well up within you. But it is possible. But I think often we fall on the one end of that with, uh, you know, not being, not be, or being a doormat, you know what I mean? Using our love and forgiveness as, as a means to allow them to weaponize it against us. But then on the other hand, you'll hear Christians say, well, I'll turn the other cheek, but I only have two. Yeah. That's not at all what Yeshua Jesus was, was how, how he was intending you to take that. You can slap me once, but I'm going to punch you back after that first cheek. That, no, no. You know, his, his forgiveness exhortation was 70 times 70. Mm-hmm. I heard a pastor say recently, you better grow a lot more cheeks if you want to fall under his forgiveness paradigm. And you better hope, you better hope that he doesn't approach you the same way you're approaching other people because he forgives you repeatedly. That's what he's saying there. He's saying, I will forgive you over and over and over and over again. 70 times 70, by the way, isn't like you get to that number threshold and then you're not forgiven after that. It's an idiom, right. meaning indefinite. indefinite. Yeah, it's an indefinite, an, an indefinite number. Of, of times. And if you expect that from him, you have to be willing to extend that to others. Yeah, don't get out your tally marks. No. no yeah. Who's going to carry around a notebook with them? Well, with names. Oh, that's number 143. Check mark. <laughs> You're getting close, Chris. You're getting close. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we'll dive into what I wanted to talk about this first segment because we don't run too long on time. We'll see how this goes. Like I told you guys, my notes are all over the place. It's a jumbled mess because I just didn't have time. I had so much going on. But uh, 
I guess the first thing I wanted to do was ask you guys, and there's no real wrong answer to these questions, but I kind of want to get a baseline for what I want to talk about on the bottom half, really. What is regeneration? Biblically speaking, how would you define regeneration? He's gone to college for this. Mike over here, so I'll ask you <laughs> first, Chris. Oh, darn. Biblically He's speaking? highly educated. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's that. No, <laughs> Don't no, tell I've people been, that. Exactly. I've, you can tell of the... I've, I've heard how you guys talk about Bible, Bible graduates before, so I don't know. <laughs> I'm getting nervous. <laughs> no, um, I mean, regeneration in the sense, you know, it's... Let me let me word this a different way. So regeneration comparative to sanctification, because I think we conflate those two terms sometimes. So regeneration compared to ongoing or progressive sanctification. Okay. How would you how would you explain what regeneration is? If if a non believer asked you what is regeneration? Do you just want me to go straight to Micah? Probably. Give me <laughs> a buffer you're sweat here. bullets, man. Yeah. <laughs> Give me a buffer here. I'm trying to like word it to where it sounds good. More more so than I just said sounds good. Yeah. But I mean, it's to me, it's from a place of being cut down to growing back to what you were before. Oh, I love that. I, I mean, it's, I love that. I mean, if in, in the simplest terms, it's just regrowth, 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 cut out the old so the new can grow. Mm-hmm. I really like that. There too. You just can't go with that one. I am. I think that's fantastic. I do. You know what I love about that is too often I see what see, you... See, he stumbled around long enough, you knew he'd get it. Yes. See, this is why I put you on the spot, exactly. because you're, you're so much more insightful than you give yourself credit for. Because I hear that defined a lot, and I think a lot of times we define it with these like borderline pompous theological terms to talk over people's heads. Yeah. Often it talks over believers' heads, let alone non-believers. And I think more That's often than not... Mean. not <laughs> highbrow. <laughs> I think, you know, we need definitions like that more frequently in a way yes. that, you know, people can understand. And what I like about the definition is it requires somebody to do the cutting and the regrowing, right? Mm-hmm. And that ain't us. Yep. We had a pastor in college. Sorry, not to, no. not to, oh, not to lighten it, but we had a pastor in, or a professor in college since you brought up the college graduate thing. He used to say, always use the kiss method. Kiss method. Let's keep it simple, stupid. Yep. <laughs> Love it. It's one of my favorite. Yeah. Favorite idioms. <laughs> there you go. Not the right word, idiom. Yeah. Yep, yep, it is. It is, yeah. You got it. Okay. So the follow-up to that is, so I would describe regeneration as the work of the Spirit. When, when the Spirit enters into your life and causes that change, that shift, I believe regeneration is the shift. I believe it encompasses, or at least that that's part of the encompass, the encompassing of it, is is the change from what you were before to what He intends you to be. And then progressive sanctification would be the growth that that follows that. That's how I would personally define it. Try not to be highbrow. But I think that's how I, like using your analogy, I think the regeneration is the the cutting down and the planting of a new seed. Yep. So that the vine can regrow or the tree can regrow. Yes. Right? Right. But the the growth following that would be progressive sanctification, meaning ongoing sanctification. Sanctification means we've gone into this before on the podcast. It means to be made holy or to be made right with the Father, with God. And that's an ongoing process that I I believe takes our entire lifetime. If if you get to a point where you're no longer being sanctified, you've probably become a little arrogant in your faith. Like you don't Mm -hmm. believe you need it anymore. I agree. Absolutely. 
So the follow-up is we've we've sort of defined repentance. We're going to do more on in on that end on the bottom half of the episode because that's really where I want to like focus on is what what does repentance look like in our Christian walk? What should it look look like? But I guess the follow-up to regeneration is in in asking how it relates to our ongoing walk with Jesus. Does true repentance precede it or follow it? And this is where it's a little debatable. So there's like no wrong answer, but I'm just curious what you guys would say. True repentance, as we've defined it already. Would that precede regeneration or follow regeneration or both? He's looking at you, Micah, like he wants no, to answer. No, I'm, no I'm, I don't want to talk over Micah. That's the thing. Oh, okay. I think it's both. I think there can be, I think it can be the catalyst that, you know, that, that starts it. Or it can be in basically like hindsight, like you didn't realize how big of the issue it was until you got away from it and looked back on it. Mm-hmm. I think it, it gets it, that the answer to that's a little bit situational depending on, you know, the circumstances. Like, cause I think it can be both. I think repentance comes first. I think in order to have new growth, you've got to be repentant. Yes. Not, <clears throat> not necessarily that you can't have growth. I agree with you. Not necessarily that you can't have growth without repentance. That's not mm-hmm. what I'm saying. But I think if you're talking about in a situation that I need to repent of my sin in order for me to grow from that, I've got to be repentant from that. Correct. And so I would say, I would say repentance comes first. I would say it's a little both. I would say you're, 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 you're both right because I believe it's, for me, it's, it's how are we defining repentance in that moment? Yeah. So I believe that a form of repentance must precede regeneration. But I think often we conflate sanctification with repentance, and that's not necessarily wrong because sanctification is a form of repentance. Yes. So I think in, in that sense, if that's how we define repentance in that moment, then it also follows it. Sure. So I think a form of repentance both precedes and follows, and we'll kind of see that in the text that we're going to get into on the bottom half, but that's how I would answer that. I just thought it would be a fun question yeah. to ask you guys, so I was curious. Curious where that would lead. Yeah, and don't and don't get me wrong, Mike. I do agree with you that I think that it 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 is all a form of it too. But you know, I mean, I know in my life where I've been repentant of a sin, but then you know, from it having grown from it and grown away from it, I look back on it and I and then I have a new, like a new regeneration from that because mm-hmm. it's. I realized how far and how bad it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then now I'm grateful all over again that I'm even going even further from it. So that's kind of what I've, mm-hmm. I say. It's to me, it can be both sides mm-hmm. of it. It, it needs, it needs to happen on the forefront, but then it can also be, uh, you know, uh, uh, an end result. Yeah. I don't want to say end result. I guess there's really no end result, but a, a result process. Yeah. yeah. I love that word. We use that word a lot because that's what it is. Yes. Like it's it's a process. Our yes. walk with our walk with him is a process throughout our lifetime. And I like that you mentioned that 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 you know, we often don't see how bad the pit was that we <laughs> fell into until he pulls us out of it. That's true. I think there's there's a lot of truth to yes. that. It was for me. I thought I thought yeah. I was fine until I wasn't. <laughs> you know, exactly. you don't you don't realize you need a rescue until you need a rescue. Right. right. You know, and you have to get pretty deep before you you get to a place where you have to cry out. It's not like you're waist deep. You are you are neck neck deep in an in an unscalable pit, and you had to have fallen into that. And I think that's what sin is. That's the, that's the enemy's purpose with sin in our life. I should say. 
And I'm glad you mentioned sin too, because that was going to be the next thing I pointed. Because this is really what I wanted to, these questions to lead to is what is repentance leading us away from? And obviously, biblically, it's always repenting from sin. And sin, of course, is missing his mark. It's that that's how it's defined biblically is missing the mark that God says before us. So he gives us commandments, statutes, ordinances, a law, anything that deviates away from that is a sin. Yes. And that's what he calls us to repent from, to turn away. Or, or if we, if we go completely off the rails and turn away from him altogether, it's returning to him. Yes. So it's, if we're walking away from the most high completely, like the prodigal son, we have to wake up in the pig pen at some point, pivot and walk back. I don't know why I'm talking with my hands on a podcast. I do that so often. That's the final R. What's that? What one? That's the final R. Return. 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 Yeah. Yes. Return to <laughs> me. No, I'm glad. I'm glad we got clicked. there. I was like, right. yeah. Because he says that yes. frequently throughout the prophets and in Revelation, return, yes. return, return, which means that when we sin, he views sin as walking away from him. Yes. Even if we still believe in him, he views sin as walking away from him. So before in sin, he expects us and demands us to pivot away from that sin and return to him. And this is where it gets sticky for churches that are on the verge of losing their lampstand is how do we define sin? Yes. Because that's the real sticking point. Mm -hmm. They don't like to define sin biblically because it's not popular. Yes. If we're being honest with ourselves, it's it's due to popularity, right? We don't want to chase the numbers. It's not inclusive. Not inclusive. So, I've sort of already defined what sin is, basically. Anything that's in, in deviation of his law. We see this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. If we want to look in a new, you know, we, we see that definition throughout the text. Yeah. But if I was going to point to a new covenant letter, he defines it. Sin is lawlessness. And that is, I believe it's anomos in the Greek. It's transgression of the law is essentially what that term means. So deviation from the law of the Most High is defined as sin. John defines that for us. I don't think you're... Belly rumbles are coming through the microphone, so you're good, Chris. We had that issue. No, no, I had to. We all made the face, man. Carl was Carl's the one that Carl called it out. Yeah, well, I have to share it because people can't see the faces being made. Right. Eventually, we'll do this on YouTube or something. So, essentially, repenting from sin is, if I was going to define it, it's agreeing to do the Father's will, the Father's way. To link it back to last week, that issue that I had with that. Remember that post about that church? They're just doing they're just doing God's will their way. That's not biblical. We, there there are some things that we're at liberty to do in our worship, right? There are some things that he there are some areas of worship that he gives us liberty and leeway with tradition that does not violate his standard, yeah. but he does not give us liberty to violate his law. We're not at liberty to approach him however we choose. We saw that in the in the cart last week. David tried to do things his way. Superficially, it didn't seem like it was wrong, but obviously there was a reason that he had the laws in place and he learned the hard way what that reason was. We do the same thing when we as Christians say, we can do the Father's will our way. Yeah. It's fine. No, we can't. It's it, re- Repenting is turning away from the things that he calls sin without compromising in the bad in the bad form of compromise. Right? There are forms of compromise that are good, yes, but but when it comes to trying to compromise with the most high on, well, I'm okay with these statutes and these ordinances, God, but I don't really like this one. So how about you just be okay with me just doing these things I like? I'm doing three quarters of it. It's good enough, right? It's more than half. 
That's fine. Let's compromise. You don't get to compromise with the most high. That's right. We can yeah, compromise with, the, with each other to make peace. No. Exactly. <laughs> no, he does not negotiate with us. That's a great word. No. He tells us to return to him, do things his way, his do his will his way, or else. Yes. There's a separation. He doesn't want to be separated from us. He's not a mean-spirited father up there trying to look for reasons to punish us. And if we want the truth, he's given us every opportunity to return, okay. usually over and over and over and over again. So yeah, he's he's the, he does the opposite. He, he wants does. that intimacy with us. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to push us away or make us angry. He wants that intimacy with us. Yes. And and he moves heaven and earth to get get us to that place abs- where we can have that intimacy. Absolutely. Unless we just outright refuse it. Yeah. We grew up in a church and I and I'm not big on slogans or or catchphrases or anything. I know a lot of assemblies do that and we're I'm not one of them, but um they had a good one that I that I really stuck with me and it was striving to please God in all our ways, according to all his ways, always. I like that. I do too. I like that kind of It just kind of stuck because most of the slogans are kind of there and kind of they come and go. But I, I always remembered that that particular phrase that, that it's a great reminder. And so, yeah. So I think what I want to do, I want to read the account of the bad Micah. That's where my intro came from. I wanted to differentiate from our Micah because right. this has nothing to do with him, but it's in Judges chapter six. And what we're going to do, I'm just going to read through the account because it's not very long. And then we're going to back up and discuss a couple things to connect it to what we've already discussed and connect it with what we're going to discuss on the, on the other end, on the bottom half of the episode. I'm sorry, not Judges chapter six, Judges chapter 17. I had... Judges 6 in my mind, because I believe that's Gideon, and that's where we're at in our Bible study. Now, this is the only place we see this 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 Micah character. This isn't the prophet Micah, obviously, of, of his, own, his own letter. This is a, a Micah during the Judges period, and this is the only place that we find him, to my knowledge. He's in this one chapter, and I believe it's here as a cautionary tale for us, yes. and I believe that there's something in here that gives a, a pretty staunch caution to the modern churches, even especially connecting. I'm glad you brought up Revelation because I think yeah. there's a connection here with this. It's odd kind of how it starts. We're just sort of thrown into this story after he's evidently stolen some money from his mother. We're not really given the, 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 the back end of this story. We're just thrown in the middle of it, and then it moves on to something else entirely. So... We're just going to read this chapter, and like I say, then I'll back up. Are you good, Chris? Can you say that again? The uh, chapter? Yeah. Judges chapter 17. Okay. For some reason, when you said Judges, I went to Jude, and then I got lost. I'm like, oh yeah, this is, a, this is a completely wrong end of the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay, starting in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. He said to his mother, the 1100 pieces of silver, which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. He then returned the 1100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return them to you. So when he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to the silversmith who made them into a graven image and a molten image and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine 
and he made an ephod and household idols and consecrated one of his sons that he might become a priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah who was a Levite, and he was staying there. Then the man departed from the city from Bethlehem in Judah to, to stay wherever he might find a place. And as he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to stay wherever I may find a place. Micah then said to him, Dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and your maintenance. So the Levite went in. The Levite agreed to live with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as a priest. So we're going to stop. I have a couple questions here on the back end of this. First is, what was Micah's compromise? His sin. I'll let you take that one. <laughs> you already kind of said it. That's an idolatry, yeah. Idolatry. Yeah. It's just on the face idolatry. He was making actual graven images. So, biblically speaking, I know, I know what his idolatry was. It was an actual graven image. But what is an idol? Anything we place above God is an idol. Correct. Could be TV, could be sports, could be a spouse, could be a job could be that's now always a, something that we make and bow down and worship statue. yes mm -hmm. I, I think often we justify it in that way we justify it as a well i'm not going to worship a piece of wood or anything you know i'm right. gonna but but we do place things in our life above above him i agree i 100 percent agree i think we i think it's in deuteronomy chapter 8 and he talks about those who disobey his law and he classifies disobeying his law as forgetting him. Yeah. And in the context, it can be a believer. Mm -hmm. He's saying, if you willingly, willfully disobey me, you've forgotten me. So in, in, in Samuel also, we, we find that, what does he say? That rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and idolatry. I forget what that said. I think it's First Samuel chapter 15. I believe is where that's at. Mm -hmm. So he point blank says through the prophet Samuel that he classifies rebellion or disobeying his instructions as idolatry. Mm -hmm. it's, to, to him, it's no different. It's, it's indistinguishable. I'm glad you defined it that way, because that's exactly how I would define it, too. There's something interesting. I just I read that. That was the, the New American Standard Bible that I read from, and I read it exactly like it's worded. I think you lose something in the English. 1523, 1 Samuel. Thank you. That's, I, I thought it was yes. 23, <laughs> but I didn't want to say 23 out yes. loud and be wrong. Thank you. So yes, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23, rebellion is as witchcraft and idolatry. He views it as, as, as one and the same. That's, that's important yes. for, the, for the takeaway from this, because I think it's easy to just read this account and say, oh yeah, don't worship, don't worship images. It's deeper. Yes. There's a deeper implication here than just bowing down to, to images. Part of what we lose in the English is it just says Lord. And in Often, I think we read that and just think that, well, they're just titling their images, right? They're just because in English, Lord is just a title. 
That's all it is. And Lord can be applied to a lot of different things, including Baal. Technically, Baal translates as Lord also. So we read that and we're like, well, he was just, he completely pivoted, him and his mom pivoted completely away from Yahweh, from the Most High, and they were worshiping images that they just titled as Lord. The reason I mention this is because anytime you see Lord all caps, L-O-R-D, all capitalized, they've replaced the name of God with the word Lord. They've done the same thing that the Jewish people do. They're so afraid to say his name out loud that they take the, the vowel points out so that it's kind of debatable now how to pronounce his name. So they've sort of, they replace his name so that they don't say his name out loud. And we've carried that forward into our English Christian Bible translations, and we've done the same thing. So instead of putting the Tetragrammaton, which is the four consonants of, of his name, which in English you would render as Y-H-W-H. That's where we get Yahweh or Yehovah or Yahuwah. However you, however you, whatever, whatever, whatever pronunciation you've arrived at, we get those pronunciations by how we think that vowel points should be added because we don't have them. So I just say Yahweh because it's the most common. It's, I, I'm not even going to get into debate on on how to say his name out loud because that gets very heated. I just say that because it's the most common way to say his name. But the point is, it's his name. We've replaced it with Lord there, which I think is a mistake. I think we should at least put the tetragrammaton because in this case, this highlights how it can change how we view the text because it point blank says in there, if you look at what part was all caps, which Lord was all caps, he dedicated the silver to Yahweh. When he made the graven images, he called them Yahweh, not Baal. Do you see the, do you see the problem here and how this carries forward to us and how dangerous this is? He was doing this in the name of the most high. So he hadn't forgotten Yahweh existed. He was worshiping Yahweh his way, his own way, Micah's way. Instead of worshiping Yahweh Yahweh's way, way a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I like how they came out, actually. It did. Yah's way. Instead of doing things Yah's way, he was doing things Micah's way. He was still worshiping Yahweh, but Yahweh rejects it because it's not according to his standard of approach. He's given us a standard of how we're allowed to approach him. And clearly, idolatry is in is in, in accordance with that standard. But everything he dedicated to Yahweh, and the lesson here is we can do things in the name of God. In Micah's case, it was in the name of Yahweh. In our case, I think we often do things in the name of Jesus. Yep. We treat the name Jesus like it sanitizes sin. Like as long as we put a Jesus tag on it, well, it's okay. I can do pagan stuff. It's okay. Now we've we've redeemed it for Christ. I can put a Jesus tag on it. No big deal. I can worship in pagan ways. I can approach him in pagan ways. I can ignore the commandments that I don't like because Jesus. I do it in Jesus' name. It's all right. It wasn't okay when Micah did it. And the Most High doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. Right? He doesn't change his character is a better way to understand that, I think, his, his, his purpose. He doesn't change his purpose. There are often times where we see that there's a shift that occurs, and the shift is often because we've sinned. It's always because we've sinned. Whenever, whenever it appears like the Most High has changed his mind, what's really happened is we've sinned in some way to create a separation that changes the paradigm. That's what you see. He never changed his mind in the sense that he changed his purpose, if that kind of makes sense. We'll get into that in a, in a future episode that kind of relates to this. But the point is, Micah's sin wasn't that he forgot Yahweh existed or that he turned away from him entirely. Micah's sin here, the bad Micah's sin here, was that he was attempting to worship the Most High in a way that the Most High forbade. And I think we do the same thing. 
Any thoughts on the text that we read mm-hmm. on that account? I'm learning. I'm learning right now. <laughs> so here's my next question. What was Micah's excuse? What did this Micah character point to as his excuse? You know, or you just want me to answer? You brought in a Levite priest and said, hey, this is okay now. Yep. Or a person from Levi made him a priest. I think that Micah viewed the Levite showing up when he did as a blessing from the Most High. I think he believed that him showing up when he did was a blessing. And the reason I believe that is because of the very last line in that text. Micah said, surely Yahweh will, because when we read that with the Most High's name in there, because it's not just Lord. In that that specific verse, he actually says the name of Yahweh. He says, surely Yahweh will prosper me. Prosper. I think that's an important word because I think Micah's excuse for his sin was prosperity. I think he believed that the Levite showing up exactly when he did, right when he needed a proper credentialed priest, was Yahweh prospering him. And he was going to continue to prosper him. I think he used prosperity as an excuse for his sin. And I think, again, that's a, a, a staunch cautionary tale for the church today because typically I think we do the same thing. I think we point to, to prosperity as evidence that, that the Most High is blessing what we're doing, even what we're doing, even when what we're doing is clearly against his standard. We point to attendance numbers. We point to deep pocket tithe revenue. We point to big expensive buildings. We point to expensive, or I'm sorry, expensive successful programs, right? We point to all these worldly success stories and say, look at that. Jesus is blessing us. While we're preaching anti-law doctrine. And we view his prosperity, what we think is him prospering us, as sanitizing our bad doctrine. Like he's putting a stamp of approval on it. What you may be experiencing is him being kind and gracious to you. There's also danger that we are experiencing his prosperity from the other guy. For Micah here, his prosperity did not come from Yahweh. His prosperity came from Satan. And there's a danger for us in that too. I think prosperity can come from the other guy. If you remember, when Satan tempted Jesus, he offered him a lot of worldly success, a lot of material gain, and a lot of prosperity. Mm-hmm. Prosperity is not evidence. I'm not saying that Yahweh won't use prosperity. I'm not saying that he won't prosper us. But prosperity isn't the evidence that you're in alignment with his will. His word is. If your doctrine can be aligned with his word, it's right. If it can't be, it's wrong and should be rejected. Full stop. Prosperity doesn't matter. Before we close out this top half, I kind of want to, we already mentioned it once, but the story of the cart in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, Just to rehash it, they were moving, David, King David, was moving the Ark of God to Jerusalem. It was supposed to be carried on poles, but they had a better way. So they put it on a cart. So that carried on poles so that no man would touch it. Yes. With his bare hands. I believe so. I believe that's the whole point of the poles. We're not explicitly told that, I don't think, but it's, it's strongly implied that that's the point because you can just slide right. the poles in the rings and you never have to touch, you never have to touch the ark. 
It's, it's pretty clear that's what the intent is there. And we're told in Numbers, in the book of Numbers chapter 4, I think, that, that no one can touch it because it's holy. Because we're in separation. We have a separation, or at least then. You know, I believe that's, that's for another episode. But <laughs> at that time, they couldn't touch it, right? Mm-hmm. But they had a better way. They had an easier way. They had a, a more sensible way. Put it on a cart. Makes more sense. Long story short, cart shakes, arc about falls. One of the priests holds out his hand to touch it. He dies. He dies. And the poles would have protected him from that entire situation. The rules were in place for protection, not punishment, not burden, not to make things more difficult. It was about protection. And the Most High allowed that circumstance to occur to show, I don't give you rules because they're burdensome. I don't give you rules because oh, it'd be a lot more difficult to carry this thing everywhere. That'd be fun to watch from heaven. I think we're going to make him carry it instead of put it on a cart. He put the rules in place to protect him. Was and, more or less, he wasn't punking them. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and that, you know, David learned a real painful lesson that day. He was angry at first. It says that he was angry at the Most High. The reason I bring that up again to kind of rehash it is superficially, everything looked prosperous. He had 30,000 people there, so huge attendance numbers, right? They had good music. They were playing music and dancing. They had that good contemporary Believers music, they were playing real loud. Everybody was into it. Everybody was waving their hands in the air. Everybody, it, it was great. It was an awesome worship service. Essentially, is what it describes there. But on the back end, they were trying to do God's will their own way. And it ended in calamity. And if we keep pushing it in our churches, we may have all the attendance numbers. We might have all the tithe revenue. Right? We might have the big buildings and the great worship and the awesome music and the great music directors, but if we're doing our will our way, it will end in calamity. And that calamity, to bring up what you already referenced, Micah, might look like him taking our candlestick away. Yep. If you're prospering now, maybe it's because he's delaying taking it away. Yes, That's not because he's telling you that your bad doctrine's good. It's because he's merciful and it's gracious and patient. He's telling us to repent yes. or else. <laughs> and we need to start listening. I guess that's my point. I don't know that he, I mean, again, it proves your point that he is a gracious God because in all those assemblies that we're talking about there in Revelation, you get the picture that he doesn't remove it right away. Right. He, he threatens to, I will come quickly mm-hmm. and remove your lampstand, but he's giving them that opportunity. Yes. Or else. He's giving them an or else. Mm-hmm. You know, or else what? Or else I will remove your lampstand. Yep. I will remove your candlestick, you know, however you reference it. But and that's that's powerful. It is. Mm-hmm. I love the analogy. I think I've brought it up before, but I love it. I, I heard it from Tony Evans once, and I don't know if it originates with, with him or he repeated it, but he, he talked about, you know, there's a, there's a space of time between God's judgment declared mm-hmm. and God's judgment applied. So when, when Jesus says, I'm going to remove your lampstand unless you repent, He's declaring the judgment, yep. but he hasn't applied the judgment yet. And and Tony said that space of time between those two things is grace. Yes, Grace is not a license to continue sinning, and that's the problem. The churches treat grace like it's a license to sin. That's not what grace is. Grace is the space of time between judgment declared for not repenting, judgment applied for not repenting. He's giving you a space to return. And I think there are times when he's so gracious and merciful that even when we get on the other side of the judgment applied, he still lets us return. I think we see a picture of that with King Manasseh mm-hmm. from Second Chronicles chapter 33. 
he sent the prophets to declare judgment to Manasseh that if you don't turn from your evil, if you don't turn from your, your idolatry and your child sacrifice, I'm going to apply judgment to you. Manasseh, according to the account, just scoffed at the prophets and sent them away and refused to listen. Over and over and over again, God sent the prophets. There was a huge space of time there. Well, then the judgment fell down. The hammer came down and judgment was applied and he was taken into an Assyrian prison cell. And it wasn't until after on the other side of the judgment applied to Manasseh that he repented. And even there, even there on the other side of the judgment applied, Yahweh chose to hear his cry for help, see his heart's plea that it was genuine and restore him. That's how gracious our God is, but he didn't restore him and say, it's okay to do some idolatry now because I've forgiven you. You're under grace now. It's not what he did. He restored him and gave him the heart to repent to turn away from his sin when he went back to Jerusalem, right? And if, if we're mishandling his grace and treating it like it's a license to sin, you're still in danger of the judgment being applied because you're completely missing the point. And I think that's, that's how we'll transition because I think typically the response to this would be, well, we're in the new covenant now and things have changed, right? Things have, we'll get into that next week, but some things haven't. And what we're going to talk about on the bottom half is what the new covenant is and what the proper application is. So I'm going to cut it off here. Unless you guys have final thoughts on what we've already discussed, I'm going to cut it here. Uh, we always do a song break, and I'm actually pretty excited to announce this. So I had just whined last week about how nobody's getting back with me about, about using their music other than Mike Maranatha. Seriously, guys, it was so funny. So I'd sent this guy. It's, it's, we just got permission to use the music from a guy called ASAP Preach. He's awesome. Like I love his, I love his stuff. Those of you listening, ASAP Preach, A S A P, Preach. He's a Christian rapper. I love his work. I love his story. I love his heart. It's fantastic. But anyway, I had reached out to him days ago. I actually reached out to him weeks ago on Twitter, but I don't think a lot of people read Twitter messages. And uh, so I reached out to him on Facebook on his uh, his actual copyright for his music. I didn't hear anything for a few days because he's busy, you know. And I'm like, I'm probably not going to hear back. It's going to be another one of those that, you know, they just, they never, they get so many messages in, they probably just won't even see the message. You know what I mean? Right. And I prayed about it. I'm like, God, I'd, I'd really like this little win. <laughs> Can you give me a win on this? And I kid you not. I prayed that night, woke up the next morning to his message, responded back. It's like, yes, use it. Like emphatically, like use the music. Mm -hmm. So we got permission to use his music. Sorry to tell that story, but I'm so excited about it. So we're going to play for this week. We're going to play a song from him for our featured song. Be sure and stay until the other side, and we'll we'll continue this discussion on the bottom half of the episode. But we're gonna we're gonna play. Uh, it's called the interview by ASAP Preach. Hope you enjoy. Catch you on the other side. Why am I a Christian? Because there was a time in my life when I prayed and asked Jesus Christ to come into my heart. I want you to know that the greatest heresy in the American evangelical and Protestant church is that if you pray and ask Jesus Christ to come into your heart, He will definitely come in. Come in. Come in. Come in. To come to this place I, I, I think I've been here before I don't feel safe Because all they do is hate That I do this for the Lord He strengthens me They try to throw stones at me But this is not phasing me When I'm alone The temptations are strong Staying away from me You cannot make me weak Nah, I know I'm safe for a cause Cause people relate to me They call him ball and say to me Your music is changing me I feel your pain in it I feel the same You see God has given me grace it made a new way for me I see that I do not like to be my flesh no more But God's word alone is the only thing I can eat Whoa, he's filling me up I'm glad to be part of it Music is sowing the seeds Now let his word water it I'm sitting back and I'm watching it grow Yes, I do have regrets But what have 
I learn from them I know that if I do not go through what I have to go through Probably I will not, I will not turn from them Whoa, I learn from mistakes They made me the man I am And to the people I've hurt I didn't mean it to hurt you Believe me and please understand I am sorry If God is forgiven for all of you done Then you should forgive me too I should be punished for what I have did to you God has forgiven me, this is my interview what you need to know is that salvation is by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. And faith alone in Jesus Christ is preceded and followed by repentance. A turning away from sin, a hatred for the things that God hates. The feeling I woke up this morning to got me to the place I'm asking for more truth. Cause when I stand up for what I believe in, they do not accept I'm the person they pointing to. Laughing with fingers point at me, but sadly it's funny to them who attack me. But love them, be glad that you're rapping and preaching the truth. Cause reacting wrong is how they're trying to catch me. But listen, I am not perfect. Soon as you get this inside of my verses, despite that I'm nervous to telling you, there is a better you hiding behind in the curtains. Jesus rebelling. I'm speaking the truth to them. They do not care how I'm feeling. They think I'm mad at them. I'm only mad at sin. Hating was trying to kill them. Why won't they listen? Take it from me, though. I made it through hell. And I know God is real. Wish they could tell. This is from God for real people in hell. Wish they could come for hell. This is the deal. It hurts me to see all these people on earth that are suffering. Why are they mad at me? I am just trying to tell them what Jesus has done for me. This is my mission. My purpose is driven by Jesus and what he could do for you. Give him a try. Believe he's alive and watch all the mountains he moves for you. God is unmovable. I came from a broken home. My pots was a rolling stone. I was left home alone. And banging and hustling and clubbing was all I was focused on. That's what I learned about. That's what I heard about. Yes, it was word to mouth. I was living in sin and dying within. My candle was burning out. But Jesus, he told me to turn around. And told me what he did for me. And changed my life and didn't think twice. Write it down, this is my story. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Will you remind them that there's a day when mercy is cut off forever? Will you remind them that people pray in hell but nobody ever answers? You will rarely find a message now on repentance. Church that has forgotten its foundations, a church that's turned away from its beginnings and begins to become a harlot church. Half-truths. This gospel says, just believe and get saved. There's nothing of repentance. Nothing of godly sorrow, nothing of turning from your sins, nothing about taking up your cross and following the Lord. Now I'm going to tell you something, a diluted gospel is no gospel at all. And we are back. Again, that was the interview by ASAP Preach. Seriously, check that guy out. He's wherever you get your music, Spotify, Apple YouTube, ASAP Preach, check him out, give him a follow, follow what he's doing, he's doing great work. And that goes for Mike Marim Maranatha too, the other guy that we get music from. Check those guys out and show them some love. So diving back into our conversation, like I said, I think, oh. <laughs> Sorry, I said I was ready, but then like right as you started talking, I like, I like coughed, or I held back a cough. Yeah. And just, I couldn't, it was like scratching my throat. No, you're good. I'm going to leave that in now since you right. gave us the whole monologue on how the yeah. cough. 
how the cough came about. Like, well, Micah, Micah <laughs> caught it. I was like, <laughs> and he so he looked over and he smiled. I'm like, I'm not gonna break it. I'm not gonna break. And I did. Sorry. So this half we're going to talk about the new covenant. And the reason this is important, and actually I think we're going to talk about the new covenant for the next two or three weeks, different aspects of it. And the reason this is important with what we talked about on the top half, and really last week also, you know, was dealing with compromise and things like that. Often what I hear is, well, we're not under that old covenant anymore. We're in a new covenant now. It's true. There's, there's truth to that statement. The problem is when we apply that and we say this blank page here between Matthew and Malachi, everything before that, disregard it. It's not fully applicable to us because of the way we've subdivided the Bible out. So everything on the left of Matthew is old covenant so we can get rid of it. The problem with that, and, and you know this, Micah, there are prophets in here that are still fully applicable. Every prophecy spoken by the mouth of Yahweh is applicable to us. Many of these prophecies haven't even happened yet. Yes. So how can we say that, that these prophets aren't applicable in the new covenant when they're prophesying about the new covenant and beyond? Just on the face of that, that's senseless. We have the wisdom literature, like Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Psalms, telling me that's not applicable. Right. It's, it's general wisdom flowing from the heart of Yahweh. His heart doesn't change. How's that not applicable anymore? So if we were being more honest, we would say, okay, the real issue is the book of the law. That's the part we don't like. That's closer to the truth. I think, I think that's closer to the truth. And that's why it's going to take a couple weeks, I think, of diving into this on, on how God subdivides his covenant and law and things like that. Because there is a difference between the, the, what's called the scroll of the covenant as it was given at Sinai. We kind of got into that mm-hmm. in our intent series, right? We talked a lot about that, about his, his original intent was a kingdom of priests who all related to him, had a, had a relationship mm-hmm. with him. That's what he wanted. And that was, that was lost, right? He knew it was going to be, but I think it, I think he showed us at Sinai what his intent was, what his heart intent was. And then kind of showed us on the other end of that, how we were going to have to a- achieve that through Jesus. That was only going to be realized through Jesus in a new covenant, Right. The problem is we we take that Sinai covenant, we just disregard that too. You, you see what I mean? Like right down to the Ten Commandments and the whole thing, and really, really it kind of comes down to, to a, a couple of the commandments that we really don't like there. That we sort of pluck out and say, well, this is part of the old covenant. The rest of this, I like the stuff about not coveting because that keeps my wife in line. All right, so I'm going to keep that in the new covenant. Right. <laughs> but this other stuff I don't like so much, so I'm going to get rid of that. That's really what I'm kind of getting at is when we, when we just say everything here in the old covenant, the point I'm trying to make, you know, I'm sorry, I'll, right, I'll turn it over to you. The point I'm trying to make is you can't take this entire front half of your Bible and say, this is old covenant. It's not applicable. It's a little bit more complicated than that. And that's what we're going to kind of talk about. First, we're going to define the new covenant this week and how that applies. Next week, we're going to talk about what did change. Because so I think we need to have a, a conversation because something did change. There was a shift. I think that's undeniable. I think the problem is we've over-applied what that change encapsulates to justify our sin. What were you going to say, Chris? No, I just, I think, you know, our theme is, you know, things that are easy. And I think that's, that's the reason that they, that they, you know, that's the, the going trend is just throw the whole thing out mm-hmm. because, you know, it's hard to, it's, it's really hard to defend the, well, I'm going to pick this one and this one and this one because I like them mm-hmm. because somebody, as we do points and say, why are you picking those out, not keeping everything? Yeah. Well, it's easier to go back and find a way to defend getting rid of it all. 
and going forward from there. Right. I yeah. Think that's, I think that's the, the purpose of that. And that movement is it's just easier to defend getting rid of it all. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to mention this until next week, but I think my, my monologue and explaining, I over explain things. I noticed that about myself. Like I should just like end it in one, in one sentence and then I, I, I let it turn into an essay. I don't know why I do that. Right. So I over explained myself a little bit, but I think that makes what I was going to share next week fit a little bit more. A few weeks ago, you had mentioned you had mentioned a guy. He calls himself the uh, progressive preacher, I think, on TikTok. Mm-hmm. And you had talked about how he 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 explained the Lazarus event, where in some translations it words it in English, where Jesus said Lazarus come out, mm-hmm. and he was saying what he's saying is he's telling the homosexual community to come out of the closet and just be yourself. Right. So like it was put in twentieth century terms. Yes. Like he was saying that Jesus would have used 20th century terms mm-hmm. in that time period. And yeah. it's not implicable. Grossly twisting the words of the Messiah to justify sin. It's, it's extreme. At the time you mentioned it, I hadn't seen it. But after, after that, I, I did have it pop up in my feed a couple of times with, with certain individuals refuting his claim mm-hmm. and rightfully re- refuting the claim right. Cause I it's, think it's bad. The video that I seen was a, was a rebuke video. Mm-hmm. I believe it's, it's, the red, the red pin rebuke or something mm-hmm. like that. I can't remember. The, I'll have to look it up, but it was, it was a rebuke video to it. And that's right. what the explanation was, was, you know, first of all, you're using 20th century terms in, in, in a time where those, those words would not have had the same impact. Right. As, as even, you know, 60 years ago, the term coming out of the closet wasn't a thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Not yeah. Alone. 2000 years ago. So I had a, I had a little bit of, no, you're good. You, I had a little bit of a different takeaway on it when I watched it. And like I said, this will apply to, to, to what we're going to talk about the next two or three weeks. Like say today, we're going to define the new covenant. Next week, we're going to talk about the change. And I think unless he presses something different on me, the following week, we're going to dig into what, what does Jesus say about the new covenant? What does he say about how the law applies to us? Because I think we tend to disregard what he had to say. Like this TikTok preacher did and that's why i kind of bring this up and my takeaway was a lot of these response videos i saw they just smacked of condescension toward this guy right and i don't think that's a good spirit to have i understand that they they're disgusted by how he's twisting jesus to justify sin but the first thing that really hit me in my heart when i when i watched this is this guy is not the disease he's the symptom he's the symptom of something that a lot of these individuals that are doing response videos to to him on are promoting the disease is treating the new covenant like it gives us a license to sin and he may choose to justify a different sin but it's still justifying sin in the name of jesus and i think it's easy to have response videos on progressive preacher because he's promoting homosexuality and let's be real homosexuality is the low-hanging sin fruit it's easy to knock that down because everybody agrees it's a low-hanging fruit Mm -hmm. But what about when we're talking about things like Sabbath? When we, when we say that the fourth of the big 10 can be knocked out in the name of Jesus and the new covenant, and then we promote doctrines that say, well, we're not under this old archaic law anymore. We have what I, what I heard a local preacher say once, we have, we have liberty in Christ now. And we have to accept that people that obey him are just ignorant of their Christian liberty. So, so w- when somebody gives a sermon 
essentially saying that anyone who obeys these laws back here that mainstream Christianity disagrees with is just ignorant. What progressive preachers doing is taking that foundational premise and running with it. And it's a symptom of the disease of the foundational premise. We don't cure to, to, to get into what we were talking about in the break, you know, about our suspicion that there are some cures to some things that pharmaceutical companies don't want you to know about because there's more money in what? What did we, what did we say? There's, treatment. there's more money in treatment. There's more money in keeping you perpetually medicated. I think that we tend to do the same thing theologically. It would fix it. It would, it would cure the disease if we would just agree to agree with the Father. <laughs> if we would all just together agree to agree with him. To do things the Father's way, not our own way. Instead of building or, or, or spinning these really twisted theological webs to justify, I don't want to give up this sin. So I want to twist this theological web to justify why it's okay to sin in this way in the New Covenant. But then when this guy over here does the exact same thing to justify difference, I'm going to say he's a heretic. There's a problem there. And it all comes down to a misunderstanding, a mishandling, and a misapplication of the New Covenant. The extent and scope of what changed. And that's why this discussion, I think, is important. So the first thing that I want to read, and it's kind of an obvious, is Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, when I think of everything that God does, he establishes by two or three witnesses. It's a, it's a principle in his law that everything's established by two or three witnesses. And he, he tells us in the prophets clearly that he won't do anything without first telling his prophets ahead of time. So nothing that he would do would take us by surprise. We could look back in the prophets and see, oh, this is what he planned all along. It, you, we should expect that with the new covenant. As, as huge of a paradigm shift as the new covenant is, we should expect him to talk about it in the prophets. Right, and he does talk about the prophets a lot, a lot more than we I think we give him credit for. There's a lot of things in the prophets that I think are references to the new covenant that we sort of gloss over. We could probably have ten episodes straight just talking about how the prophets talk about the new covenant, right? But the most obvious is Jeremiah chapter 31. I think it's the one we always think of. So that's the first thing I want to look at because there's an important when, when we really analyze what he says here. There's something important in how we apply the new covenant, and I'm going to read. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. And then we'll discuss that for a second and then jump to a, our second witness. We're going to have three witnesses. So we'll jump to our second witness after that. Go ahead. Good. And he says this, and this is Yahweh talking through Jeremiah. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. Actually, I'm going to pause there because there's a couple points that I want to make here before we move forward. First, who's the covenant with? Who does he say the new covenant is with? Did you catch it? Israel and Judah. That's who he makes the covenant with. Not a completely new entity. And that's why we've talked before about, like, and you know, you and I have talked about it privately that, you know, you know, we say church because that's everybody understands the word, but we really don't like it. Because it, it doesn't it doesn't really give a proper understanding of what it is. A better understanding is the Greek ecclesia, which is assembly. And from beginning to end of of the revealed text of 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 his narrative, the Bible is his narrative in in revealing himself to us. And it's always been about building a people group for himself that he calls Israel. 
he's always called it Israel, right? So we are adopted into his people group, his assembly, as ratified in the new covenant. So that's essentially what he's saying. So the, the people group isn't changing, right? The covenant is. It's the covenant that changes. Right. But it's still with Israel and Judah. The, those are the people that he wants to bring in and Gentiles on the outside are grafted in, mm-hmm. are adopted in. Would you agree? Yes. Essentially, okay. Yes. The second thing here is he mentions Egypt. He mentions it's not like the covenant he made when he led them by the hand out of Egypt. So he's talking about the Exodus event. The reason this is important, and it'll be highlighted in the next verse, verse 33, when I read that, he's talking about Sinai. Okay, he's talking about the covenant that he made at Mount Sinai with the people of Israel, right? And the mixed multitude, which means there were Gentiles there with them. So this is in Exodus chapters... Read, read chapters 19 through 33. So chapter 20 is when he actually gives the Ten Commandments from the mountain. And those commandments are written on stone. So I'm just going to, I'm going to give a, a, a summary of this very briefly because we don't have time to go back into that. I think we're going to do a whole episode on the golden calf because that's important for the understanding of the new covenant too. But long story short, chapter 19, he brings them to the base of the mountain. He has a, a, a essentially like a ratification feast with the leaders of Israel, makes it clear that he wants a kingdom of priests, right? He wants everybody to have a relationship with him. The people stand afar off and they declare that they don't want to hear the voice of Yahweh. They just want to hear Moses tell them what Yahweh has to say. So essentially, I think what we're being told there is that he wants a relationship with everybody. We know that on the other side of Jesus, we know this. We know that he wants a relationship with each of us individually. He wanted it with them too. We're not special or better than them. He wanted the same thing with them. They didn't. They just wanted a spokesperson to tell them what Yahweh had to say because they didn't want to hear his voice because they were afraid, right? So then Moses goes up on the mountain with Joshua, leaves Joshua partway up, and then Moses goes all the way up and gets the Ten Commandments. So fire consumes the, the mountain, right? Moses walks into the to the deep darkness and the fire of the mountain is what it is is what it says in Hebrew. It's interesting the way it the way it describes the mountain. You know, if you look at where I believe Mount Sinai is, it's not huge, so you should have been able to see him at the top of it unless it was covered by something supernatural. And that's essentially what Exodus tells us is that the fire of Yahweh came down on the mountain. Mm-hmm. Right? It's it's a fascinating picture that it that it presents. He gets the tablets. This is going to take longer than I planned on. I planned on this being like a 30-second explanation, but I think I need to explain it a little bit more because it's important for the context of the new covenant here. We may not get, I'm going to be like you in your sermons, Micah. Like you never get like past your like second, third point. I may not get through this episode. I don't know. We'll see how this goes. That's fine. <laughs> You're rubbing off on me, buddy. There you go, see? But uh, anyway, so he gets the, the Ten Commandments and it says that they're written on tablets. What's interesting is the first set of Ten Commandments are from tablets from heaven or on tablets from heaven. So what the picture that we're presented is when he receives those tablets, they're tablets of stone from heaven that Abiyah wrote the Ten Commandments on with his own finger and gave to Moses. Now what follows in chapters 21 through 31 are the statutes, what we call the statutes and ordinances. So essentially what occurs is that Moses goes on the mountain, he's there for a while, this is going to be important in a second. It's actually believed traditionally that this was on the Feast of Pentecost that this occurred. And when you do the math, the math seems to add up. So there are three festivals, three harvest festivals, we call them, and they're pilgrimage festivals. All three 
he wanted the people to to travel to Jerusalem to be with him. The first is the Passover season and unleavened bread. The second is Pentecost, and the third is Tabernacles. So Pentecost, and I'm mentioning this for a reason because it's going to be important when we get to Acts chapter two. Pentecost is actually the anniversary of the giving of the Ten Commandments, the giving of the 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 law, and the ratification of that that old covenant, what we call the old covenant. Okay. So he gets the Ten Commandments, and then what follows are the statutes and ordinances. And essentially what this is, is the Ten Commandments are pretty basic, right? You have you have commandments relating to our approach to Yahweh, and then you have commandments relating to our approach to our neighbor, is essentially what the Ten Commandments encapsulate. And then the statutes and ordinances follow, give real-world examples and scenarios to explain how to apply that in your day-to-day living. A good example of that is the ox in the mud. Example, if you see your neighbor and their ox is in the mud, even if your neighbor is an enemy, you are obligated to go help them get their ox out of the mud. doesn't matter what day it is. Even if it's on the Sabbath, that's not considered working for your own ends. You're helping your neighbor. So he's given them practical application, or what the statutes and ordinances are, how to practically apply the Ten Commandments. Then 32 is when it gets interesting. So he receives the Ten Commandments, and he's coming down off the mountain. Well, actually, what happens first is the people get impatient. They're waiting around for Moses, and they clearly, when you read the full Exodus account, the people did not have faith. They did not have faith in Yahweh. I'm actually going to read something in a second from Jeremiah that I came to today that's fascinating. But they petition Aaron to make a golden calf for themselves. That's where we get the phrase golden calf rebellion. Mm-hmm. So this is something they had learned in Egypt. The Egyptians worshipped their gods in the form of calves. Uh, I believe what they were making there was an apis bull. We'll get into that when we have a full episode in the golden calf. But I'm just going to kind of reduce this down. But anyway, they were attempting to worship Yahweh through the golden calf. We have a similar scenario to what we saw with the bad Micah. It says that they wanted they it, it says they wanted a golden calf to replace Moses as the mouthpiece of Yahweh. Then it says after they get the golden calf made, they have a festival unto Yahweh. Hmm. Not unto the calf, unto Yahweh. What's fascinating about this is again, this probably occurred on Pentecost. So I think they were actually celebrating Yahweh's biblical feast of Pentecost in the name of Yahweh, but through the golden calf. They were attempting to approach him and worship him their own way. Yahweh, however, did not view this as just a, an act of compromised worship of himself. He viewed it as a complete departure from him. Because what he tells Moses is, get off the mountain, go down quick. Your people have already departed. Your people have already departed from me. And then we sort of have this hilarious back and forth with Yahweh where like it, it seems like, and I know it's probably a quirk of the language, but I find it funny in English where it seems like Yahweh says, your people, your people are doing this, Moses. Then Moses is like, uh, you told me to bring your people out. <laughs> so it's like this yeah. argument between like, they're, he's not mine, they're yours. Yeah. I don't know. They're yours. No, they're yours. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's really the intent of the text, but I just find it funny how it comes across in the English. But anyway, he sends Moses down and then something important happens. When he comes down with Joshua, they can hear the festival and they know it's not good. It's, it's probably, there's probably some pretty vile things going on, probably orgies and things like that. The way it describes it, that's what it seems, that's what it seems like it's describing is some pretty, we know how the pagans worship, the sort of worship they would have learned from Egypt. And I think they were carrying that over into their worship of Yahweh is what they were doing. So they come down and then when Moses sees it, he breaks the tablets. I think typically when we read that, we've seen it in, movies that notoriously don't portray things accurately 
I think I think we view him breaking the tablets as just like a, a fit of rage, right? And it was nothing more than that. It was just a fit of rage. I think it was much more symbolic than that. Much more symbolic because essentially what the people had done was they had broken the covenant with him already. They had already broken the covenant that he had just established because remember in chapter 20, it says that he spoke the Ten Commandments, commandments out loud in the hearing of the people before he gave them to Moses on tablets of stones, they heard it. They heard it with their own ears. It says that in the text that he spoke the commandments out loud in their hearing. Part of that is having no other gods before me. That's one of the commands, the very first one. The very first two commandments is how we approach Yahweh and how we are to have no other gods before him. They heard that with their own ears in less than a couple months, less than a few weeks, on a, he's up there. It says he's up there 40 days, but we don't really know when that 40 days started because he's kind of going up and down the mountain back and forth. But within days, they'd already disobeyed the command they just heard out loud, so they broke it and knowingly broke it. That's what's important. They didn't accidentally broke his, break because I think, I think too often when we skip over that, that aspect of him speaking it out loud, we think, well, they didn't get a chance to read the Ten Commandments yet. How are they supposed to know? They heard it out loud. Mm-hmm. That's why that's important. They knew. They didn't need to read it. They heard it out loud, so they willingly broke his covenant. And Moses breaks the Ten Commandments because the tablets are essentially like a contract. When, when the covenant was ratified, those Ten Commandments symbolize the ratification. Yahweh, essentially, it's like a, the reason I call it a marriage covenant is it emulates that. Yahweh gives the marital vows in the form of the Ten Commandments, and all the people respond. When they hear it out loud, they say, we will do everything Yahweh has instructed us. So you have this back and forth. When he speaks the commandments out loud in chapter 20, they respond with, we will do everything the instructions. In chapter 19 or 20, it's one of those two chapters. We, we will do this. So they agreed. They agreed to the covenant. Then Moses goes up and ratifies that agreement, and then they broke it on purpose. So he breaks it to show that they've broken the covenant. They've broken the contract. Now, at that point, legally... Yahweh would have been, uh, he would have been fully legally justified in just eradicating the people. And he actually told Moses that was an option. Because he tells Moses, get out of my way. I'm going to destroy these people and I'm going to build a new nation out of you. And I think he did this to test Moses to see what was in his heart. Because Moses' response was, what would the people say about you if you did that? Because essentially Moses is worried about how that would affect Yahweh's name and the view of the Gentiles who need to see Yahweh as a light. And he's like, what are the people going to say if they see that, you know, Yahweh brought his people out of Egypt with great signs and wonders only to destroy them in the wilderness? And Yahweh says, I'm paraphrasing him, obviously. Okay. <laughs> but there's going to be some, com- there's, there's going to be some consequences. The reason I bring that whole story up is because we see in chapter 33, a re-ratification of that old covenant. But some interesting things happened that changed. I should, you know what? I'm not going to get into that yet because I want I want to save that for when we talk about the change. But some things shifted, so there were some shifts that occurred between the way the covenant was intended before they broke it, and breaking it was inevitable. Without a heart change in us individually, breaking His covenant was always going to be inevitable. That's where that word regeneration comes into play. Why I brought that up in the top half. We have to be regenerated by a work of the Spirit in order to properly walk in His ways. They hadn't experienced that. So he's showing all of us that without, without that regeneration process, this, isn't, this is as inevitable as the fall is in the garden. It was always going to happen. It, essentially, this golden calf rebellion is a repeat of Adam and Eve's fall in the garden. 
And it just shows that, you know, those people that say, well, if I had been in the garden, I wouldn't have eaten the fruit. Yeah, you would have. Eventually, yeah, you would have. You would have done the same thing. Eventually, you were going to sin in some way. The people with the golden calf proved this. If it wasn't the fruit, it would have been something else. (laughs) It would have been something else. Absolutely right. The, the, the point I'm driving to, and like I say, we'll, we'll, we'll expand on the golden calf and, and dissect that a little bit more in a separate discussion because I think it bears, you know, you guys are kind of getting, getting thrown to the wolves on that a little bit. Like I hadn't told you that we were going to talk about that and that probably needs a little bit more prep time. But anyway, chapter 33, he re-ratifies that covenant. What's interesting though, is he gets tablets of stone again, but he doesn't get them from heaven. This time, Yahweh tells Moses to cut his own tablets from earth, but then the same commandments are written on him. That's the important part. The covenant changed. The people broke that covenant, which means that our new covenant, it's not the first time there was a covenant change. We miss that because we gloss over Exodus and we gloss over that account because we treat all this, this, this half of our Bible like it's not relevant to us anymore, so we don't really study it. Change had already happened. When the people broke the first covenant of the tablets from heaven, they had to ratify a new covenant with tablets from earth. But it was the same instructions written on them. Now I'm going to read Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. And you're probably going to see why this is important. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh, meaning this is future tense in Jeremiah's perspective. Obviously past tense for us. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I'm going to read chapter 34, 2 here, just to show something about the new covenant before I back up to 33. And 34 says, They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, No, Yahweh, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. 34, that's when we stop. 34 there kind of shows there are aspects of the new covenant that haven't happened yet. So the new covenant has been ratified, obviously, but I don't think it's been, I don't think it will have been brought to its fullness until we get to the new kingdom. Because we don't all know Yahweh yet. And we do still have need of teachers, right? Because we're still teaching each other. We still have pastors. We still have, you know, we still have leaders and things like that. This is, this is talking about a time when even that won't be necessary anymore. I just want to kind of mention that just for understanding, but that I don't want to spend too much time on that because it sort of misses the point. We have been forgiven our iniquities, but backing up to verse 33, it says that his law, what really, what really sets the new covenant apart from the old covenant is that his law is written on our heart individually, individual relationships, which is what he always wanted. So what changed? When we're talking about the the old covenant that I just described with the tablets, what changes in the new covenant? The law or the tablet upon which it was written? I think it's obvious. I think Jeremiah makes it obviously clear here. And when we understand how the old covenant was ratified, I think a light bulb kind of goes off. Just like the tablets changed before when they broke the covenant, and then they broke it again and broke it again and again and again and again. We see when he makes a new covenant with us by the blood of Jesus, he writes it on a new tablet where it was always intended to be on our heart. Our heart's the tablet. But the law is the same. We see that when we dive into the word law. That word law there is Torah in Hebrew. 
and that is always in reference to his covenant instruction. Always. And most specifically, it usually narrowly, narrowly applies to the Ten Commandments and the statutes relating to the Ten Commandments. Always. So he's point blank saying, these, these commandments that were written on tablets of stone, I'm going to write them on your heart. That's what changes is the tablet. So when we misapply the new covenant and say that, well, the law doesn't apply anymore because we have the spirit in our heart now, Jeremiah tells us that the law was written on our heart. And if we're properly applying the new covenant, walking in step with him, we'd be seeking to obey those laws. We should be. And if we're not, we need to do some soul searching, I think. Does that kind of make sense? Tor is an interesting word too. I just want to take a second just to sort of like expand on that a little. The root for Tor is actually Yari. And it's a it's it's a it's an archery term or a shooting term. It can it can apply to any kind of shooting sport, but back in that day it would have more specifically narrowly applied to like archery and slings, things like that. And it literally means to cast in a direction with the intent of hitting a mark. So essentially what, what Torah, the underlying meaning of Torah is to hit the mark is essentially what it means. That's pretty fascinating. Hmm. He gives us the mark. He gives us his, his expectations for us. And when we miss the target, we're sinning. When we're hitting the mark, we're not. And that's what he writes in our heart. It's, it's, it's the mark that we're aiming at. That's what he writes in our heart. And we can't pick and choose which parts of that we like and what we don't. Because the Ten Commandments is not a, it's not a buffet, right? It is a, it's all written on these stones and you can't take one part out. So, I don't know how we can read that and come to any other conclusion than the law is still relevant in a New Covenant context. I guess that's the takeaway I want from Jeremiah here. Is the law still relevant? And if our churches are teaching that it's not for the sake of growth and material success stories and prosperity, we need to go back to the drawing board because we've gone astray and calamity will follow that. If we're not careful, we will lose our lampstand. If we continue teaching people falsely for the sake of material gain, got to stop that. That went way longer than I intended. But you guys have any thoughts on that before we move on to the next part and hope I have time for it? No, I mean it's it's pretty straightforward. The what's what the contract's written on, albeit stone parchment, your heart. The contract's still the same. It's just the the media is different. Yep. I want to find something that I turned to earlier today, since we talked a lot more than I intended on uh, the people in in Egypt and the Exodus. This wasn't supposed to be a, an episode on them, but I think it was important for the context of what, what Jeremiah is actually telling us there. Sorry. Is that you? <laughs> My goodness. That's catching because mine's like <laughs> rumbling now too. <laughs> See what you started, Chris? I was going to say, like, I'm not the only one. <laughs> We're all hungry. 
hungry for the word. We're waiting for what Carl's going to come up with yeah, next. Anticipation. I'm wondering. We're anticipating this next verse. It's going to be a you know, mind-blowing verse that just... I think it is. There it is. But I don't remember where it was at now. I thought it was Jeremiah chapter 33, but maybe it's not. I thought it was mind-blowing to me. Maybe you guys would be like, well, I already knew that. It's not impressive at all. Well, maybe that was the intent. It was just intended for you. That could be. There's a very good chance that was it. So I can't find it. I thought it was Jeremiah chapter 33. Maybe I just keep glossing over it. Essentially what it said was, it was talking about the people in the, in the Exodus. And more specifically, the, the people that wandered in the desert for 40 years. And he point blank says, in the prophecy, this is Yahweh talking, that they never worshipped him. That they were always actually worshipping a god called Shamosh, I think. He names out two pagan deities and says that throughout their wilderness journey, they weren't really worshipping him in their heart. In their heart, they were actually worshipping two pagan, pagan deities they had learned about in Egypt. I guess I'd never caught that in prophecy before. Yeah. And this is this would have been on the other side of the golden calf even, because he's talking about them wandering the desert and continually worshiping these other deities. This would have been the generation that he struck down in the wilderness. And the reason I thought that was kind of uh, a little paradigm shifting is we we tend to think of, you know, they, they made this one mistake. He says he forgave them, but then he struck them down in the wilderness anyway. And it was the next generation that, that took the promised land. But what he says in prophecy is that they continually worshiped these other deities in their heart that they never actually turned back to him. Right. And and I think the reason, I wish I could find that, I think the reason it's it's so tragic to me and heartbreaking to me is these people saw all kinds of signs and wonders. Mm-hmm. They saw miracles like you would not believe. You know what I mean? When you read that account, and still their hearts were continually straying to other false gods, or not other, two false gods, but other false gods. He's not a false god. He's the god. They were straying away from him, which is proof. We, th- we tend to think that if God would just do these miracles, and if we could just see, because this is something I've been thinking about a lot. I was going to talk on the, on the top half. Something he's really been pressing on me is the power of the Spirit. And I think sometimes when we think of the power of the Spirit, we think of these big, grand things like we're going to read about in Acts here in a second. And we think, man, if he would just do something big, because I've been, I've been guilty of this the past couple of weeks. If, we would, if he would just do something big, people would see and believe. But the people in the wilderness prove that's not true. They prove it's not true. He did amazing miracles in their sight. Yep. Over and over and over again, he did, he did things that I would give anything to go back and be able to see firsthand, and they still didn't believe. Miracles accomplish nothing for belief. If somebody has it, has it purposed in their heart to disbelieve in the Most High, they don't disbelieve in Him because, and I guess this is how I connected to our topic today, disbelief I don't think is based upon not seeing proof. I think what it's really, when you scratch beneath the surface, I think what it's really based upon is not liking the standard of conduct that He expects, and they want to go their own way. So they make excuses in their heart to go their own way, and I think that's what the people in the wilderness did. They didn't like His standard. They didn't like the expectations. They wanted to go their own way. And it, it lost them the promised land. It was, it was, we had it easier before. Yeah. Look at us now. Yeah. Yeah. And the obvious takeaway for us is, you know, we, we all know what the promised land is, is symbolic of, right? Right. 
It's, it's more than just attractive land in the Middle East. It's about being in his kingdom. They lost it because their hearts were far from him, because they didn't like his standard. And I, I'd be lying if I told you I don't see that in the churches. If I don't see in the churches that we don't like his standard, we call on his name, but in our heart, we're straying from him because we don't like his standard of conduct. And I worry, I worry that we're going to lose our promised land if we don't stop it. Did you find the reference that I was talking about? I saw you kind of searching on your phone. I am. Um, I turned to it randomly earlier and I thought it was Jeremiah 34. You're going to get some behind the scenes listeners. I'm not going to cut this. You're just going to, you're going to get our agony of trying to figure out where things are because this is a real Bible study. Unscripted. 11. It talks a little bit about the new covenant. So I was thinking that's where you might have thought. I don't think it was a reference to the new covenant. He was talking about the people, the people in the wilderness that were straying. Mm-hmm. And I hate to mention something like that and not give the reference. You know what I mean? Yeah. As he talks about, I brought them out of the land of Egypt and the iron furnace. Obey my voice and do according to all that I command you. So shall you be my people, and I will be your God, that I may establish the oath which I have sworn to your fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey, as it is this day. I think I know where it was. I was also in Amos chapter 5 today. Hmm. For a completely different reason, because we're going to do a whole episode on Amos chapter 5, but I think that's where I actually read this. It was. It was Amos chapter 5. So he's, this Amos chapter 5 is really a prophecy about the day of Yahweh, about uh, about uh, the, his future, the second coming, the tribulation period, but it's also relevant to the time of Amos. You see this a lot in prophecy, like a dualistic prophecy, where it's like the current event is a foreshadowing of the future fulfillment. You see this with Amos. But in, in Amos chapter 5, verse 25, Yahweh says this, did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried along Sikuth your king and Kiyun your images, the star of your gods which you made for yourselves. Therefore I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says Yahweh, whose name is the God of hosts. Now, the way I read that is he's, it seems like he's saying that in the wilderness for the 40 years on the other side of the exodus, they were, they were, they were wavering in their heart. It's like they were giving lip service to Yahweh, but they were also carrying images of their false gods with them too. Right. Yeah. It's, it almost seems like, like they were, they were worshiping God, but they were keeping a fail safe. Like they a double mind. Like yeah, double minded. Like, yeah. Like they were keeping their, their, well, in case this God doesn't work out, we're going to bring these along. That's exactly what it feels like, which is sort of what led to the golden calf to begin with. Like I highlighted, they thought they lost Moses. And just in case they lost Moses, because they weren't willing to approach the most high, they weren't going to go up on the mountain. There's fire up there. You crazy? That's what they're thinking. We want, we want a mediator. Mm -hmm. They were seeking a mediator. This is an example of, of, of a people group attempting to do Yah's will their way. They knew they needed a mediator. They tried to do it their way. Right. And I, I almost... I almost say I want to disagree with 
when you said earlier that they didn't, they wanted Moses to be the mediator because they were fearful. I think that's a little bit of it, but I also think it was because they wanted it easy. Do you think that they were claiming fear as an excuse? Yeah. I think they, we're, we're, we're scared of being struck down, but really what it is is I don't want to go up this mountain and, and have to learn all these laws. I can't just someone come down here and tell me what to do. Right. And I think that's what they wanted. And that's not what God wanted. God wanted a nation of priests. He wanted them to be with them mm-hmm. and them to be with him. And they, you know, they, even then that was them. I feel like that was them kind of turning from that. Yeah. Uh, that seems like an awful lot of work. Can't we just send Moses up and he can tell us what to do? So I was correct. I'm not going to get out of my first point. I think what we're going to do, because this is running long and I don't, I, I don't want to inundate with information because I don't think that's helpful. I think sometimes I think we, 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 we overload with information too quick and it feels rushed. It, it feels rushed. And I think it, it proves itself to be counterproductive. So I think, I think that's enough to kind of like set our teeth on for a little bit to chew on those of you listening and we'll just do a two part two of this episode next week instead of instead of digging into the change i think next week we'll just have a what's on your mind on the top half and then we'll just have a part two of this discussion next week to get into the next part because the next part i want to get into is acts chapter two the pentecost because when we think of the new covenant i think that's what and, and rightfully so that's where our minds tend to go to first is that ratification event during that that pentecost in acts chapter two and i don't want to rush through that and then we're going to link that to another prophet and in, in prophecy to Ezekiel as our third witness to make my point on on what a proper application of the new covenant is. And then we'll talk about what did change, what shifted and why in the the weeks following. But I don't, like I say, I don't want to rush all that. So I think that's where we're going to stop. So I'll uh, turn it over to you guys. If you guys have any final thoughts and I'll give my final thought and we'll close this out. No, I mean, I think and it can be about anything. It doesn't have to be about right, specifically. No, no, the, you know, running back, like I said, it, it, it always kind of, it strikes me that people say, oh, they were, they were fearful. But again, you know, like we talked about, I think they were using the fear as a, as a, well, we'll just, we'll stay down here and party mm-hmm. and you go up the mountain and, and do the studying and the learning and do all the work and then come down here and tell us how to live. I think That's often easier. we want the. We want the blessings, but we we don't want the responsibilities. Right. And I think you're right. I think maybe that's what they were guilty of. And and to me, it's 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 funny how how I don't know how parallel a a Christian's walk today can be to, to that. Where I don't really want to walk this out during the week. That's a whole lot of work. So I'll go to church on Sunday. <laughs> Let somebody tell me what to do. And then, and then once I leave there, I won't do anything until next Sunday. Or more often they seek or a church just, of somebody that'll just say something that makes them feel good about what they're already doing. I think that's too often what we do. Check the boxes and then well, that's it. That's all, that's all the effort that's required of me. I'm done. Yep. Well, there's so many. So if I don't like this one, I'll just check something else out. Yep. Right. I'll find one that teaches what i like to hear not what the bible teaches yep that's what church shopping typically tends to tend to look like is i'll find i'll find a place that doesn't make me feel too convicted i'll find some place that makes me feel just convicted enough to feel pious 
but not so convicted that I feel like I have to really change something major. Right. We don't want that. That's what the spirit wants from us. You're going to see that next week. <laughs> as, as the, as the weeks go on, when we, when we really dig into what scripture actually teaches us, there's a lot more in us that he wants to change than we're willing to admit. Absolutely. A lot more. So, I think it's interesting that my final thought, I guess, would be that it's interesting that he used the phrase that they wanted a mediator. Mm-hmm. And yet, God provided that in Jesus. He says he's the mediator. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he is the, the go-between for us. And what an amazing truth that that is. And that's a whole episode in itself, too, because there's no way we could unpack that in the next five, ten minutes that we have left. But No, but I think we will do an episode on that because that's yeah. been on my heart. What What does it mean that he's the good shepherd? I think that, yeah. could, that could open up a really awesome discussion because yeah. it's deeper than I think, I oh, think we absolutely. tend to understand. I think everything that we need to know is in Psalm 23.1. We all quote Psalm 23. We love that that passage. And it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yeah. I don't need anything because he's the shepherd. Mm-hmm. Of course he makes me lie down in green pastures. Of course he restores my soul. Of course he, of course I can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil because he's the good shepherd. Yep. Everything that evolve, everything that follows verse one just shows you yes. what what comes if you trust in what verse one says. Yes. If you trust. Absolutely. I love it. The trailer for that episode, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Snake peek. Yes. I like it. So I guess my final thought, I was going to talk a little bit about if then promises. And it might have made more sense if I got through all my points, but it still kind of makes sense because that's essentially what the new covenant is. It is is an if-then promise. Yes. If you do this, then I will do that. One of my favorite stories from antiquity is between Macedonia and Sparta. And it was during the reign of King Philip II of Macedonia. He was actually Alexander the Great's father. And it's probably where Alexander learned his, his lust for expansion was probably from Philip because Philip was desperate to expand his kingdom. He was he was a legacy seeker. You see that frequently with with kings of that era. Really, honestly, you see that with leaders today too. Mm-hmm. I think you're seeing that from Russia right now. There's 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 a there's a lust for legacy. Mm-hmm. And when you're a world leader, legacy is built on expansion and empire. And that's what Philip wanted. So he turned his sights first south toward Greece because Macedon is just north of Greece. It's right on the the northern border of Greece. What we know of as Greece now during that time. Greece was essentially split up into multiple city-states, right? They, they were all kind of conglomerate, but they all were self-ruled. And Sparta was on the southern end of that. And of course, we know about the, the reputation of Sparta. Uh, most of us know about the good stuff. There's a lot of bad stuff, too. We won't get into that. But as far as the, 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 the main thing that we remember about the Spartans is, was, was their prowess in warfare. They their were military might. Yes, their military might was when it was based upon how well-trained they were and the tactics they used were, were really ahead of their time. You see a lot of that adopted by Rome. A lot of, a lot of what made the Roman empire successful was some of the tactics they adopted from Sparta. I'm getting off into the weeds. I'm, I'm a history buff. I should have, I should have known better than bring I up. I saw the grip in your eye. I'm like, Oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah. Cause I'm you know. right there with you. I'm like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. To get myself back on track. Not me. You're not, you don't like <laughs> history. I'm born. You did tears, aren't I? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. We'll try to learn something. Give us the cliff notes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> exactly. So when Philip, he had already conquered most of the city-states, or if, he, he may have conquered all of them at this point, but he sends a uh, he sends a diplomatic threat 
to Sparta. And it essentially said, and I'm sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but he essentially says, if I invade Laconia, Laconia was the, the region that Sparta was located in. So Sparta was the city state, the city, and they were in the region of ruled over the region of Laconia. And he said that if I invade Laconia, I'll do this, 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 and this, and Sparta will fall never to rise again. He sends this message with a diplomatic envoy to Sparta and their ephors. This is what they called what we would refer to as their senators. So they had a Senate. Sparta was interesting. I can't offer the Louisiana. They were interesting how they had their government set up. They actually had two kings as like a check and balance system. And they had a Senate as well. And their, their leaders and their Senate were ephors. So their ephors got together. They read the message from Philip II. They debated on it. They wrote their response out. And they sent the response by a courier, a single courier. And that, that alone ticked Philip II off, that they didn't send an entire entourage. And he asked, well, you know, what is this? One man? Yes. Man to man. <laughs> What's the response? He got infuriated him. And the response to Sparta sent, you know what they said? F. Period. That was it. Hmm. One word. One word. And that's all it took. That one word was all it took to, to convey exactly the message that they wanted to convey. And what were they telling Philip? Your F is empty. Everything that Philip threatened Sparta with was all predicated upon if I invade. And with one word in a one word response, the Spartan E4s made it clear, you have no heart. You have no heart to carry your if through. We have nothing to worry about on the back end of that threat because it's all based on an empty if. They were ultimately proven right. Philip did invade Laconia, but he always avoided Sparta. He never, he never laid siege to the Spartan city-state. What's fascinating about that is during this period in history, they didn't even have a wall. Sparta didn't even have a city wall for protection, and he still avoided the city-state. He claimed, and historians agree with his claim. They believe him, and he said, well, they're too poor to worry about. I don't buy it. I think it was an excuse to save face. Because he wasn't worried about the wealth of the other poor city-states that he sacked. But he went, he went a wide berth around Sparta. And he proved the E4s right. His if was empty. Now, like I had said, Scripture is rife with if-then promises. But there's one thing I can tell you about our God. His if is never empty. Right. When he says if... He's not a cowardly, legacy-seeking, human empire leader. He's a most high God. Yes. When he says, if I will do this, or if you will do this, then I will do that, he means it. That's right. He means every syllable of it. Jesus did not cancel out those if-then promises. His purpose was not to come to earth, to be in disagreement with the Father. He said clearly, I and the Father are one. One. That, that comes from the Hebrew concept of ekat. It doesn't necessarily mean one person. It means one in purpose. Fully entwined. Indistinguishable even. When he says that he's one with the Father, it means that he is in full agreement with everything the Father has said, did say, or will say. Every syllable of it. And when we treat Jesus... Like he came bringing the new covenant to give us an excuse to disobey the father. We are wildly misrepresenting him and wildly mishandling the new covenant. That's dangerous. 
It says if is not empty. And when you look at the back end of those ifs, it's scary when you don't fall in alignment with it. He wants to have a relationship with us. He gives us a, a long stretch of a, of a grace period. But if we refuse to align ourselves with his if, that then part gets terrifying. We look at these if-then promises, I think the most, the most popular one is, I think it's first or second Chronicles, should be first Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal their land. We'd love to quote that. We, we see that quoted all the time, but then we pick and choose how we define the sin part. You notice that? We like to define the sin part when it's the low-hanging fruit, when it's some homosexual pastor on TikTok pushing a progressive agenda. But then when we come to parts where disobeying or disregarding the Sabbath is a sin, disregarding the, the harvest festivals is a sin, you know, disregarding how he says to treat our neighbor is a sin, you know, the fruit's a little higher on the tree then. And we don't, we don't like that because what we really want is the then part. We want the blessing on the back end of the if-then promise. We don't like the if part because I think in our hearts we know it's not empty. I think we know that. So we try to make excuses for it. His blood, the blood of Yeshua, Jesus, paved the way for us to see his if-then promises realized in our lives. Not an excuse. Not a license to sin. I think one of my favorite if-then promises, though, and this is what I'll close this out with, it's actually something I came across recently. It's in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 19. Just to keep with Jeremiah, since we've been in Jeremiah the entire episode, let's just stick with it, right? Mm -hmm. He says this, Therefore, thus says Yahweh, if, if you return, there's that word again, then I will restore you. There's that word again. Two of the R's we talked about earlier, remember? Before me, you will stand. And if... You extract the precious from the worthless. You will become my spokesman. They for their part may turn to you, but as for you, you must not turn to them. That's the NASB. We've talked before about how Hebrew is a notoriously difficult language to, to translate. There's a lot of idioms and things that we've lost over the years, and there's certain things that can translate different ways. This is no exception. In some translations... It renders the B part of that verse a little differently. And I think it's pretty powerful how it renders it. It says, if you speak worthy words and not worthless words, then you will be my spokesman. You must influence them. You must not be influenced by them. Oh, that changes things a little bit. That's powerful. And I think the problem with the churches today is we've allowed the outside pagan world to influence us far too much using Jesus and the new covenant as an excuse when they never gave us that excuse. He commissions us if we speak worthy and not worthless words to be his spokesman and to influence them. They're the ones that need the light, but we've invited darkness in. Instead of shining the light out and inviting them to be changed by the light, We've allowed the darkness to change us. It's like we've put a veil over it. And it shouldn't be that way. We had a fire pit not long ago, Micah. 
and we were talking about, and I'll close with this. Sorry, I'm running long on my. It's a good thing that I didn't go through my other points because we never would have made it. We were talking about the coals burning and how they burn when they're all together in unity in the center of the fire and they burn. And then when they roll away, they go out. And typically that's true. Unity is very important. While we were talking about that, something interesting happened. I talked to Steph about it after. I don't know if I talked to you about it. I did. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks in the moment. Cause we, you had just talked about how when a coal rolls away, it goes out, which is true. That's almost always true. And I looked over at the fire and a coal rolled away and it started to fizzle out. And right after you had said that, it's like something just sparked it. And it's like a flame just welled up within it and it started to burn by itself. And then when it started to burn, guess what happened? All those dead coals that were on the edge of the fire that were completely cold, they started to heat up. Mm -hmm. And they started to burn too. That's the promise that Yahweh's given Jeremiah here in chapter 15, verse 19. And I think it's the promise he gives us if we're willing to walk, like he would love us to walk with him, not just as attendees, but as prophets and priests and, 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 and children that are on fire for him. He wants us to be the sort of person that he can roll away from the rest of the fire and use the light in us that comes from him. The fire comes from him to not need the fire of others. It's important to have the fire in others. You know, it's important to have each other. I'm not saying to, you know, to abandon fellowship. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. But when there are coals outside of the fire in the outer darkness that have gone completely out and they're not going to jump up into the fire, I think there are times when he takes those that he can trust to keep that fire lit, which is trusting in him, that when he rolls us out of the fire, amidst those dead coals, the fire in us can light them on fire again. Mm. If we did, we agree to do his will, his way. That's what it takes. He's never going to use somebody like that to light other coals on fire if we're compromising and being influenced by the outer darkness because we'll just go out. If we agree to do his will, his way, we can light the world on fire. And it's all built on that if. That very full, never empty if. I guess my final word. To those of you on the other side of the mic, thank you so much for listening and including us in your day. Before you go, don't forget to follow our podcast, leave a positive review, and click the bell icon to be notified whenever we upload new episodes. Also, feel free to join us on social media and share any feedback, questions, or discussion ideas you might have. Links are in the description. Also, if you want more content like this, look up the Broken Record Ministries podcasts. Podcast. One podcast, multiple episodes. Mm. I didn't have that part written down, and it's very clear. When I can't follow a script, man, everything falls apart. And here we are. <laughs> Look up the Broken Record Ministry podcast for more content for your ear holes. And as always, we pray that what we're doing here is a blessing to you, as well as a light pointing only ever to him. Until next time, shalom. Broken Record Ministries.